I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with former FBI Special Agent Vincent Diagostino, who heads up cyber forensics and incident response at security firm Bluevoyant, about trends and insights involving ransomware attacks on healthcare sector organizations. So, Vinny, first briefly tell us about the work you did while you were at the FBI and how that pertains to the work that you're doing now with healthcare entities that are hit by ransomware attacks. I finished my career over at the FBI uh, New York's office within the cyber division, and I was on uh, specifically assigned to a squad that handled what we call non-state-sponsored criminal intrusion. So these were attacks, cyber attacks that were basically financially motivated and not directly connected to the uh, state itself. So these were attacks that went very, very public oftentimes and were were instances where there was a lot of money in play in terms of the damage that was being done or or extortions and things like that. So Vinny, walk us through a typical ransomware attack on a healthcare organization. How does the entity usually realize it's been hit and then what happens? Ransomware is definitely the number one threat in terms of the types of cases we're seeing. We do well over 100 breach investigations every year at Bluevoyant, and they run the gamut from, you know, your low-level business email compromises up and through ransomware cases. And Ransomware cases deservedly get the most attention because of how disruptive they are from a business interruption perspective and as well as a ransom payment perspective. And there's a lot of other considerations to, to factoring in, term, in terms of insurance and what's covered and what's not. And so how that typically plays out is I would say 85% of our clients come to us when they've discovered the breach because they go into the hospital that morning and three quarters of their network have been encrypted. So it's a very deliberately loud announcement of the, of the breach itself, which runs counter to a lot of other types of breaches, meaning most other types of breaches are focused on being very stealthy and quiet. Ransomware is very different in that way in that they'll be very stealthy and quiet in the weeks and months sometimes leading up to the breach as they're gaining access into your environment, as they're targeting your important data, your HIPAA data, whatever they perceive as the crown jewels that will hurt the most. They'll be very quiet during that process. Then, of course, the final stage of a ransomware attack is the announcement, which is, hey, we've encrypted all your devices. You'll have a note typically on the desktop of every encrypted machine, which provides instructions for the reader on how to contact them to begin the negotiation process. So that's typically how the client becomes aware of the breach, but the breach itself normally happens weeks and sometimes months before. So what kinds of demands are you seeing from these attackers? We've heard incidents where data and systems are locked up, and then there's other cases where these attackers also threaten to publicly post data that they've also stolen. What sort of demands are you seeing, and how are you handling this with your clients? Yeah, it's evolving very quickly. I think the first ransomware payment we made back in 2014-15-ish was probably $87, somewhere in that range. And the most recent demand we entertained for a client was $20 million. So it has grown exponentially. And when you hit the nail on the head in terms of how the actual characteristics of the breach have adapted, initially these demands were simply exfiltration of data. There were straight extortions, but this is, in my mind, the beginning of the ransomware process, which is that they would go in, exfiltrate data, and then demand large sums of money to be paid via Bitcoin to not to, you know, quote unquote, destroy the data. And what that eventually morphed into was actual encryption of devices to help the bad guy leverage that 
your downtime to pressure you to, to pay. And then the latest evolution of this over the last year or two has been certain ransomware groups have been, we're calling it double extortions, where you're, not only your devices are encrypted, which is probably crippling your business, but even if you have good backups and are in a position to not have to pay for the decryption keys to restore functionality to, to those devices, you're going to pay because the second extortion is that they've also exfiltrated your data and are going to release it publicly if you don't pay. So we've had clients that say, well, we were hit with ransomware, but fortunately we have you know really good backups. They were taken fairly recently that we can restore within a couple of days. Downtime will be minimal, so we don't want to pay. And then we start the negotiation process and very quickly learn that they've also exfiltrated large amounts of data from your network. And so now you may not want to pay because you can restore your systems, but now you have to make the decision of, do we want to pay simply to have them spare them releasing our data publicly. So then what happens because the FBI and other law enforcement has also in general advised don't pay. You know, you don't want to encourage these guys. What happens if a healthcare organization does restore its systems, but then finds out that a whole bunch of data has been stolen, they're going to post it. How do we get around not having to pay a ransom in order to keep this data from being posted? And then even if you do pay them, how do you know that it's not going to be posted? So, you know, that question really highlights that gap that we felt like was the difference between our focus and mission at the FBI and then in private sector, because you are correct that, you know, while at the FBI and these early stages of this, of course, the guidance was don't pay because it'll only embolden um, these threat actors to continue to do this, which is totally accurate, but advice that sort of lives in a vacuum, right? Because it's easy to say that when it's not your business or your client's healthcare information that's maybe exposed. And so, the FBI has moved away from that, you know, that sort of hard line, black and white sort of guidance. I think they understand that this has become much more of a business decision than maybe was initially believed. And so from our perspective, we, of course, encourage cooperation with law enforcement throughout this process because there is a lot of good information that can be gleaned during the course of a proper forensic investigation that we always encourage our clients to then permit us to pass some of that metadata, those indicators of compromise, back over to the FBI so that they can add that into their profile of these threat actor groups and hopefully it'll further their investigation. But from a guidance perspective, what the role of Bluepoint and my role specifically within these early stages of a ransomware response are to discuss the pros and cons of the decision to pay or not to pay. And of course, this is accompanied typically with what we'd call a breach coach, which is just a fancy way of saying attorneys that have specialized skill in handling data breaches. But there is a calculus based on the threat actor group. If you're dealing with, you know, Maze ransomware or Ryuk or Sotonokibi, there are all characteristics that uh, need to be discussed about those different types of groups and what that means in terms of negotiation. But the process usually starts with reaching out to the threat actor over the tour, which is Think of a, a browser for the dark web, a browser for to access a portion of the internet that is essentially untraceable. And you would reach out to the threat actor pursuant to their instructions and begin that negotiation process. And like I said, there's so many variables in that. If there's a, if it's a one million dollar demand or a twenty million dollar demand, depending on what your business interruption is, what your status of your backups are, what your belief in whether or not they actually exfiltrated that data, and that's part of our process is to vet that out to determine, okay, they're saying they took data, 
we need some type of proof that they took data because we don't want to just take their word for it. And then you start working on negotiations in terms of coming to a final number. All this is happening while at the same time you're beginning the forensic investigation as well. So there's a lot that's happening in that first 72 hours of a breach response. And what are you seeing in terms of these attacks on healthcare sector entities in the midst of COVID? You have incredibly busy organizations caring for patients. How much pressure are they under to just pay and hope that they'll get everything up and running more quickly than if they even dealt with the backup situation? The quick fix is to, of course, pay as soon as possible. And This is a business, this is organized crime, and their business model is to make sure that they're providing what their end of the bargain is. We're often asked that, well, how do you know if you pay that they won't release the data? How do you know if they pay that they won't give you the decryption keys or the decryption keys won't be functional? But the truth is, is that 99% of the time, you will receive the keys if you negotiate properly, and those, those keys will work. And again, I haven't had an instance where we've had the threat or the promise of not releasing the data if you pay, not be honored. So we've never had an instance where a client's paid and then the data was released anyway. There is honor amongst thieves to that extent, and that's just because it's good business in my mind. They must realize that it is good business to make sure that you're not ripping people off because if you're ripping people off, then of course word will get out and People will listen to law enforcement more and say, well, there's no point paying because we're going to lose our money. So the desire to pay quickly comes up often. However, and that can be done, but in that instance, you're basically, it's like going into a car dealership saying, I want a car in the next 10 minutes. Well, if that's the case, he's going to throw a price out to you and you're going to end up paying that price because you have 10 minutes to negotiate. And if they know that you need a car in 10 minutes, they're going to say, nope, that's my final price. So it's it's very similar in terms of negotiation, meaning though, the longer the time you have to negotiate, the better the outcome in terms of lower price. So that's true in life and in, in, in real life, and that's true of certainly with negotiating with these threat actors. So if there's somebody at the hospital who wants to just get things back up and running today, that can be probably done, or at least that process can start, meaning the payment can be made that quickly, but you're going to be paying top dollar. So it, it becomes very, very much more complicated once you start laying that out, the rules of the game out to the client And everyone starts to weigh in because, as I mentioned, you're not just talking about it's easy for an IT director to say we should just pay to get this up and running. Well, an IT director is likely not cutting the check. So there's a lot of other considerations to be made and also an assessment of how functional you are. It is an attack. It's called an attack for a reason. And just like in a traditional attack, part of that is assessing the damage that's been done. And that takes some time. And so whether your systems are all down, partially down, how quickly validating your backups can take some time. Probably 70% of the time we hear that we have from the client really great backups only to find out 24 hours later that those backups are defective for some reason. Either the backups have been encrypted and they didn't realize or the backups are not valid, meaning they're incomplete or there's some other defect with them. So again, that's part of walking the client through the processes. Okay, we're, we're hearing that your backups are excellent. We're not doubting you. We're simply saying, can someone please validate that? for us so we can make sure that we're calculating that properly in the determination of when to pay and how much to pay. And oftentimes, as I said, more often than not, we find out that those defectives are those backups are not nearly as valid or sustainable as they initially thought. So that's all goes into the puzzle. And as you can imagine, the variables for each incident are so great. There is no playbook. We get that often. We'll just give us a playbook on how to handle a ransomware attack and we'll just follow the playbook. 
during the negotiations, or even in terms of making the decision on whether or not to negotiate with the attackers, what role do the cyber insurers play in this? So they're put in a very tricky position, and this is because the cyber breach policies have been forced to evolve so quickly as compared to any other type of loss. It's changing so quickly that policies that were written, you know, a mere three years ago are not necessarily, and very often, they did not contemplate these types of things. So, you know, normally ransomware payments are in a separate category because they were endorsements that dealt directly with kidnappings, you know, actual kidnappings of people. No one was talking about putting in a, a ransomware endorsement section related to the kidnapping of data or encryption. And so these policies, these insurance carriers have been put in a very difficult position to have to provide support and attempt to make their insured whole. But at the same time, they might be contemplating paying these massive ransomware demands, these extortionate demands that were never really contemplated in terms of what the overall cost of the policy and premiums were, right? I mean, so you could have a small organization that may have been identified as a minimal risk that may get a $3 million demand that's way out of whack in terms of what the contemplated potential loss was and risk was that that insured. So they're put in a very difficult position. And I think that's why the first question I ask when I get on the phone with a potential breach victim is, do you have cyber insurance? Because you want to make sure that they're involved in that process right from the get-go to make sure that you're covered and that you're making decisions with that in mind and not just running in doing a bunch of things and then hoping that your policy covers all of it because it can get pretty expensive pretty quickly. So most of the carriers we deal with, and we're on think over a dozen panels now, have really bent over backwards to try to navigate these difficult, difficult decisions. And overall, by and large, have been very responsive to the insured in terms of making sure that they're erring on the side of providing coverage and support. But it'd be foolish not to believe that that cannot last forever. And carriers themselves are in a position now to not only look at how we're going to restructure these policies so that we make sure we're identifying the risk properly and not getting posed on these breaches over and over and over. And now with the recent FinCEN Department of Treasury advisories, there's also potential liability that must be considered for all parties in paying bad guys that might be on the OFAC sanctions list. So this gets extremely complicated very, very, very quickly, and no one's in a great position, but uh, you know, going at it with all these people that do this on a daily basis, that's your best bet to be able to navigate all these tough, tough decisions during a breach, as opposed to some clients or some prospective clients who, who say, well, we have some really great internal you know, IT team or we've hired an IT company to support us during this. You sit there going, well, you know, this is going to be bad for them because this is not something that just from a purely technical perspective you can attack. You might have the finest IT people in the world, but if they're not dealing with ransomware cases on a daily basis, you're going to quickly find yourself in over your head. And so getting in touch with the insurance company, getting a very, very qualified incident response team on the phone to handle the, the to begin the breach response process is really, really key to having a good outcome a month after the breach. Those initial steps have a huge ripple effect in terms of the outcome. And Vinny, for those listeners who are not familiar, what is the OFAC list? There are certain groups that, as U.S. citizens, that we are generally not permitted to pay because they've been connected with terrorist groups, connected with non-friendly nations, things like that. And so it's something that is funny 
for me because it, it's something that was never on anybody's mind until really ransomware came up. And then a lot of people had to become experts on OFAC very, very quickly in order to make sure that they don't want to follow the law. But essentially, there are groups, ransomware groups, that have been added to the OFAC list that you are not permitted to pay without specific exceptions and specific approval from the government, which they're basically never going to give you unless there's a life or death scenario. And so let's say there's a group called Wasted out there, the, the name of the ransomware group that's been connected to Evil Corp, which has been connected to the Russian government. And because of that, the government says you cannot make any payments that will end up in their hands. Well, by extension, if, if the government's determined that this is the group behind the Wasted ransomware variant, then you might say, okay, I'm a hospital. I was hit with Wasted. I'm willing to pay X amount we've negotiated. And now the question comes in, can we legally do that? Or if we do it, what are the repercussions? Well, the repercussions are technically the government could come after you after payment and you can get fined and there's all sorts of legal liabilities that they, that can be applied that you violated the Office of Foreign Asset Control OFAC. The OFAC organizations were on the OFAC list for a while, but the government specifically released advisories within the last 30 days that said incident response firms, insurance carriers, clients slash victims, all of you need to think about if you're paying one of these groups, what that could mean and that we're not ruling out that the government going after you if you do that. So it's put a spotlight on the issue and it's made a lot of organizations reevaluate their approach to ransomware cases and that vetting and due diligence process. Thank you, Vinny. I've been speaking to Vincent Diagostino. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.